Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio chatted with two activists trying to save an unloved downtown building, spoke to a publisher of a new female-centric publishing house, and with a filmmaker about her work for the ACLU. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for February 9, 2018. Buildings on Air spoke to Jonathan Solomon and Elizabeth Blasius about saving Chicago's postmodern Thompson Center, a downtown building that is on the chopping block. Solomon and Blasius spoke about the building's charm, when buildings deserve historic status, and people's complicated feelings towards government architecture. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. To the matter at hand, uh, Jonathan, Elizabeth, welcome. How are you? Swell. Fantastic. I'm terrific. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super happy you guys could be here. Um, maybe just by way of an introduction, uh, tell us who you are. Elizabeth, you can start. <laughs> um, who is Elizabeth Blasius? <laughs> Elizabeth Blasius. Blasius. Oh, that, oh yeah. that's okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky last name. Yeah. Um, I'm an architectural historian, sort of a uh, hired gun. I kind of do... National Environmental Protection Act work, um, federal law compliance. I do architectural surveys and then just sort of traditional historic building research. Gotcha. And John, who, who is Jonathan Solomon? <laughs> I'm an architect here in, um, in Chicago, and uh, I direct the Department of Architecture, Interior Architecture, and Designed Objects at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Yes, yes. Which, which also makes you my, my boss, at least in that, <laughs> in that circumstance. O- only three days a week. Yes, only three days a week. Um, but, you know, uh, we won't let that uh, keep us from any of the hard-hitting uh, journalistic integrity of buildings. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> not that I think it will be an issue. Um, <laughs> Because we're all we're all kind of on the same page here a little bit about the Thompson Center, I think, because there was this uh, sort of uh, panel discussion uh, called Starship Chicago that was paired with a, a film screening um, in conjunction with the Chicago Architecture Biennial. That must have been what like a month ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it was a really interesting discussion about the kind of state of the building and whether this was something is something that's worth saving. So, I'm, I'm hoping one of you can maybe just uh, for listeners who are trying to maybe place it in their brain, uh, describe the building, uh, where it is, what it is, what makes it special, and uh, also kind of the situation right now that makes its preservation something worth talking about. It is the weirdest building in the loop, (laughs) definitely. And the most outstanding one, too. It's red, white, and blue. And its shape really catches you from any angle. Or like salmon, teal, and off-white. Salmon, teal, and (laughs) off-white, which is is a comment to patriotism and sort of the the ideas of open government that the architect was trying to convey – based on mm-hmm. the colors, based on the shapes, based on sort of this this exploded and then put back together all the, the exterior elements, the interior elements, the, yeah. the atrium. Yeah, and it's got that wild sort of um, uh, plaza in the front. Um, and it's, yeah, the giant semicircular like curving facade. Is, it looks like it's from space. It does. It doesn't look like it's from the Chicago school. It doesn't look like it's from Chicago, America, anywhere. No. It just looks like it's been plopped down from yeah. 
Especially that, and it's like it's only like a quarter of a circle, sort of. So it's like a, maybe a quarter of a spaceship. It's actually a very hard shape to describe, yeah, isn't it? it Even is. using techniques of architectural drawing, right. it's a complicated shape to to explain. Yeah, yeah. but it's a building that a lot of people, um, actually, regardless of how how. It looks. It's a building that a lot of people pass through and use yeah. uh, because it's the home of lots of um, re- retail government services like the DMV. Like you noted, it has a, a, a CTA station, the CTA Blue Line, yeah. and the uh, the elevated trains on the on the loop are integrated into the building. Yeah. Uh, and it, it has, uh, you, you noted, a big open atrium that allows you to cut through the block between uh, LaSalle and, uh, and Clark, yeah. uh, on a, you know, on a very cold or a very hot day. Yeah. So a lot of people find themselves in it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's on the kind of chopping block. Maybe that's a, a dramatic way to put it. Uh, but the state has, uh, considered selling it. Um, and so, well, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know the full story there either, except for that Bruce Rahner has, uh, our, um, not so esteemed governor, uh, uh, if I may say, uh, <laughs> uh, has has uh, 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 considered selling it to to fix our, our supposed budget crisis in the state. It's been five seconds since you critiqued the, the governor, and no one has come in to <laughs> shut down the show. Keeper, so I, I, think, That's right. I think we're safe. We can, we're, we can we're, carry on. We're, uh, yeah. we're federally regulated here. <laughs> 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 Well, it's been looming in the, um, the the sort of threatened category since 2008, 2009. And, yeah. and I think 2015 was really – 16 was when the Governor Rauner really started talking about the, the building as a potential item up for sale, that it, it was sort of a dump. So, you know, that's when the conversation, I think, started yeah. to really kick into high gear and people in historic preservation, heritage conservation, really yeah. started to take a look at the building and take a look at how we can talk about its future. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, it, it, it is it is a little bit of a dump, right? <laughs> I mean, like affectionately so. I mean, and, and I think, uh, you know, this is part of the reason why I think it's maybe so important to have sort of um, uh, uh, thoughtful individuals, professional individuals with expertise like yourselves to, to open up a dialogue about it because the things that are wrong with the building are the lack of uh, what they call, you know, three. it's $300 million of deferred maintenance, so mm-hmm. the state says. Um, and so, like, what are the problems, like, what are the problems with the building, like, actually that um, uh, couldn't be repaired, right? I, and I, I'm not really sure what the answer is. I don't know if any of us are sh- totally sure what the answer is, but um, um, there's a big difference between uh, this building is a dump and it needs some TLC, and this building is a dump and we should, you know, sell it and tear it down. So I, I, I think this is one of the things that makes the case so interesting. Mm. There, are, there, are, there are plenty of instances where there are buildings with deferred maintenance or that need a lot of work in order to be, to be brought back to a uh, um, uh, sort of perceived state of historical correctness or perfection, sure. right? In the case of the, of the Thompson Center, the building was actually deeply faulted from the beginning, and so to talk about uh, to talk about bringing it back to a to a state at which it could be preserved is a little more complicated and and, fr- and frankly a little more interesting. I think it's what right. makes the building so special. Radio. 
1974 spoke to Martin Riker, co-publisher at the Dorothy Project. The St. Louis-based house focuses on female authors and recently published the complete short stories of noted surrealist Leonora Carrington. This excerpt contains Carrington's story, The Debutante. I-94 airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. We have a very special guest. Coming in from St. Louis is Martin Riker. He is one of the people behind the Dorothy Project. Martin, are you with us? Yeah. Hi. Morning, Martin. Hey, Martin. Dorothy Project, for folks that don't know, is a a publishing project dedicated to producing books by uh, female authors, many of them in translation. And one of the books that brought us to this project, and we're going to get Martin to talk about in just a second, is The Complete Short Stories of Leonor Carrington, uh, a book that uh, I brought to the table and that we've all been reading. We're going to have a recording from her in a moment. But Miss Carrington was a very interesting figure uh, during uh, mid-century, last, last century. She was a surrealist, she was a painter, and she was also the crafter of some extraordinarily strange short stories. Uh, Again, we're going to have a recording of one of those in a moment. But she was also a magnetic figure who uh, caroused with people like Max Ernst. She uh, had to escape Europe uh, during uh, World War II. She ended up in Mexico. And she wrote primarily in Spanish and French, despite the fact that she was an Irish woman born in England. So obviously a a pretty interesting and strange figure. And her, uh, she's dead, so I feel comfortable saying this. I I think that her short stories may be close to a work of genius. Uh, I don't think I've ever read anything like this. And I would happen to say that the story you're going to hear, and I know Jeremy's going to chime in for a second, may be one of the most perfect short stories, in fact, ever written. Well, The the Debutante, I I think, is my favorite short story. Uh, Maybe A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor, but it's in there. Uh, It blew my mind. I just want to put that in there before we keep going. It was amazing. Martin, can you tell us a little bit about what what got you guys into Carrington? Obviously, she is somewhat of a... I don't want to say a forgotten figure, but she's someone that, thanks to you guys, is enjoying a renaissance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. Um, Well, just to give you a little background on us, so uh, the press uh, was actually started by my wife and myself. I was sort of just helping at the beginning um, back in, well, it's nine years ago now. And um, in our, we only do two books a year, and we do them together in the fall. Um, It's not our day jobs. We both teach. We're both college professors. Um, but we both used to work in publishing, so we, we know how to do it. Um, and then we decided we want to do a small press. It only did two books a year because then we could do only books that we thought were really interesting and superb, and we would never have to find, you know, feel like we were stretching to find books. So in our first year, we did, we, we pretty much focused on sort of experimental or innovative fiction. And in our first year, we actually did a reprint. Most of our books haven't been reprints. They've been original authors, largely American authors. But we did uh, Barbara Coleman's book, Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead. And um, so it became kind of one of the courses that the press was taking from the very beginning was to bring in, bring back into print um, these important writers who have gone out of print. Um, now, Coleman's has since seen a re- renaissance with the New York Review books. In fact, I think there's a big piece in today's New York Times about the juniper tree, which they just reprinted. That's right, yeah. Um, and we worked with them on that and on the Carrington, because they, at the same time the same time that we did this collected stories, the New York Review books did uh, uh, Carrington's memoir um, and also did a, a collection of uh, a sort of a children's book, which is um, The Milk of Dreams, which I, I, if you have kids, is a very strange and wonderful book to check out. Um, so... The way Carrington came about for us was, you know, we're always on the lookout for interesting stuff, and this was actually one of my projects. Um, we sort of both, you know, the projects that come into the press come in from either one of us, and we both work on it pretty equally. 
And um, I had been thinking about Carrington for a long time. Her book, The Hearing Trumpet, was the only one that was in print for, for quite a few years. Um, is that a, a novel? novel and it's just, what's that? I'm sorry to interrupt. Is, is The Hearing Trumpet a novel? Because they discuss a novel, and inter- you guys discuss a novel in the introduction. Yeah, I consider The Hearing Trumpet to be a novel. <laughs> but I consider anything that's a sustained uh, work of prose to be a novel. <laughs> So it's um, you know it's probably actually her most famous book, and it's been in in print from a wonderful press called Exact Change um, for many years. Now her stories um, were in different editions that had been published over the years, and um, we decided you know we we found out that it was the centennial of her birth, and so I contacted I found out who the agent was, and we contacted them and and, just, and proposed to do a collected since there were several collections of stories that had never been brought together. And it turns out our timing was remarkable because uh, not only was the centennial coming up, but uh, the agent had already been putting together a manuscript of the stories, and it included several that had never been published before. So we, we really got lucky. Um, and then, uh, you know, we did everything we could to make a, a really nice edition of it. And we actually, you know, I know the folks over at the New York Review Book, and we worked with them. And we all sort of marketed it together. So the, the moment Carrington's been having has been like a real a collaboration between our presses and between people in the art world who are interested in her. And it's been really, you know, gratifying. Should we hear, you guys want to hear the debutante? Sure. Let's, we have uh, the debutante produced with music by, by Jeffrey Parker. We'll get to this in just one second here. Um, and this, of course, is a short story by Leonora Carrington. When I was a debutante, I often went to the zoo. I went so often that I knew the animals better than I knew the girls of my own age. Indeed, it was in order to get away from people that I found myself at the zoo every day. The animal I got to know best was a young hyena. She knew me too. She was very intelligent. I taught her French and she, in return, taught me her language. In this way, we passed many pleasant hours. My mother was arranging a ball in my honor on the 1st of May. During this time, I was in a state of great distress for a whole night. I've always detested balls, especially when they are given in my honor. On the morning of the 1st of May, 1934, very early, I went to visit the hyena. What a bloody nuisance, I said to her. I've got to go to my ball tonight. You're very lucky, she said. I'd love to go. I don't know how to dance, but at least I could make small talk. There'll be a great many different things to eat, I told her. I've seen truckloads of food delivered to our house. And you're complaining, replied the hyena, disgusted. Just think of me. I eat once a day, and you can't imagine what a heap of bloody rubbish I'm given. I had an audacious idea, and I almost laughed. All you have to do is go instead of me. We don't resemble each other, otherwise I'd gladly go, the hyena said rather sadly. Listen, I said, no one sees too well in the evening light. If you disguise yourself, nobody will notice you in the crowd. Besides, we're practically the same size. You're my only friend. I beg you to do this for me. She thought this over, and I knew that she really wanted to accept. Done, she said all of a sudden. There weren't many keepers about. It was so early in the morning. I opened the cage quickly, and in very few moments we were out in the street. I hailed a taxi. At home, everybody was still in bed. In my room, I brought out the dress I was to wear that evening. 
It was a little long, and the hyena found it difficult to walk in my high-heeled shoes. I found some gloves to hide her hands, which were too hairy to look like mine. By the time the sun was shining into my room, she was able to make her way around the room several times, walking more or less upright. We were so busy that my mother almost opened the door to say good morning before the hyena had hidden under my bed. There's a bad smell in your room, my mother said, opening the window. You must have a scented bath before tonight with my new bath salts. Certainly, I said. She didn't stay long. I think the smell was too much for her. Don't be late for breakfast, she said and left the room. The greatest difficulty was to find a way of disguising the hyena's face. We spent hours and hours looking for a way, but she always rejected my suggestions. At last, she said, I think I've found the answer. Have you got a maid? Yes, I said, puzzled. There you are then. Ring for your maid, and when she comes in, we'll pounce upon her and tear off her face. I'll wear her face tonight instead of mine. It's not practical, I said. She'll probably die if she hasn't got a face. Somebody will certainly find the corpse and will be put in prison. I'm hungry enough to eat her, the hyena replied. And the bones? As well, she said. So, it's on? Only if you promise to kill her before tearing off her face. It'll hurt too much otherwise. All right, it's all the same to me. Not without a certain amount of nervousness, I rang for Mary, my maid. I certainly wouldn't have done it if I didn't hate having to go to a ball so much. When Mary came in, I turned to the wall so as not to see. I must admit it didn't take long. A brief cry and it was over. While the hyena was eating, I looked out the window. A few minutes later, she said, I can't eat anymore. Her two feet are left over still, but if you have a little bag, I'll eat them later in the day. You'll find a bag embroidered with fleur-de-lis in the cupboard. Empty out the handkerchiefs you'll find inside and take it. She did as I suggested. Then she said, Turn round now and look how beautiful I am. In front of the mirror, the hyena was admiring herself in Mary's face. She had nibbled very neatly all around the face so that what was left was exactly what was needed. Ah, you've certainly done that very well, I said. Towards evening, when the hyena was all dressed up, she declared, I feel really in tip-top form. I have a feeling that I shall be a great success this evening. When we had heard the music from downstairs for quite some time, I said to her, Go down now, and remember, don't stand next to my mother. She's bound to realize that it isn't me. Apart from her, I don't know anybody. Best of luck. I kissed her as she left, but she did smell very strong. Night fell. Tired by the day's emotions, I took a book and sat down by the open window, giving myself up to peace and quiet. I remember that I was reading Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. About an hour later, I noticed the first signs of trouble. A bat flew in at the window, uttering little cries. I am terribly afraid of bats. I hid behind a chair, my teeth chattering. I had hardly gone down on my knees when the sound of beating wings was overcome by a great noise at my door. My mother entered, pale with rage. We just sat down at the table, she said, when that thing, sitting in your place, got up and shouted, So I smell a bit strong. What? Well, I don't eat cakes. Whereupon it tore off its face and ate it and with one great bound, it disappeared through the window.
spoke to animator Name Farzane about making films for the ACLU and unpacking her immigration experience in her work Scent of Geranium. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, we are joined today by Nagba Forenze, animator and um, Chicago ed- Chicago-based educator. And uh, let's just kind of like jump right in. So uh, recently you've done a project with the ACLU called Mass Incarceration. That's correct. Uh, and so this was three animated pieces that you did in conjunction with them? Or? Um, yeah, so this this project is um, basically a campaign for smart justice that ACLU is um, kind of uh, producing it. The producer was the ACLU, and I collaborated with Acme Film Production. And um, there was these three animated films, uh, the Director was Elise Kelly, and I was the animation director for one of the episodes, which okay. is for Lavette. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which definitely seems to match your sort of textured paint style. Uh, yes. Heavily. Definitely. So, so let us into the project. What what are these films, and what's what's the goal of them? Uh, so the campaign, uh, the ACLU campaign, the Smart Justice campaign, uh, basically one of the. Uh, goals that they have is to reduce the number of prisoners by 50%. And uh, one of the um, cases that they're um, basically following is how um, some of these uh, rulings in the courtrooms are not very fair or uh, are not justifiable to the crime that has happened. For example, the case that I worked on, uh, it's a story of a mother with two children. Uh, She's based in Chicago. And uh, she had a fight with her mother-in-law, and she was arrested for that. And for waiting for her court day, um, the the bail that the judge um, announced was way higher than what she could afford. So she basically went to jail uh, for all that time um, to basically wait for her court day. Uh, so all these cases, um, they're different in what the crime was and what the punishment was. Uh, and ACLU is kind of making an awareness with this project uh, about all the uh, things that are happening in uh, justice system that are not very just. Are there other places that these videos are showing up as well? Like, if are they promoting them elsewhere? Uh, I don't think so at a time okay. because it was a project by ACLU, so they're okay. promoting but it. But you were at Sundance with this film. Yes. Uh, so... Basically, Sundance was a kickoff for the project. Uh, we finished the project in um, in October, and uh, they, were, they were going to be released, but the Sundance was an occasion for them to kind of do a screening, premiere screening and uh, panel with uh, all three people who were in the stories. Basically, the stories were theirs. And uh, so this was an opportunity for ACLU to uh, talk about this issue openly, have a panel, bring these people out and have them talk about their experience and what is going on really um, with this topic. So um, and Sundance seemed like a perfect place for this premiere. So was it 
received well by the audience and Definitely. what what kind of uh, dialogue got started there? Yeah, so um, there was a really good crowd uh, and lots of people from different genre and different um, level of society, they came to uh, the screening. And of course, Sundance is a little bit more uh, artsy and more filmmakers or producers. So we had lots of people that they were actually documentary people that they came up and talked to us after that. And they were talking about uh, similar cases that they had or they wanted to work on. And the panel was um, basically the three people that the stories are about, uh, Lavette, Johnny, and Jason. And um, basically they were talking about their experience and uh, what they're doing now, which is phenomenal because each of them are basically doing public speaking. They're really uh, trying to advocate for other prisoners who are going through this um, problem, basically mass incar incarceration. So how did you um, first come to this project and then approach turning this story into the visuals that you created? Uh, that's actually interesting. I, I joined the project um, later on, and it was a time that my latest film, Scent of Geranium, was um, released uh, to public. And uh, the director of the three projects, she saw my film and uh, she felt that I was a perfect match for the story of Lavette because of the uh, the similarities in the projects that were, for example, with the internal uh, confusions or internal, uh, I don't know, uh, kind of uh, having th having thoughts in your brain that you don't know how to dissolve them or you don't know how to deal with them. Uh, so she thought the techniques that I was using and the visuals that I was using for my film, Scent of Geranium, was a perfect match for Levette. So they called me and uh, they had me on board for this project. Do you know how they found you? Uh, well, I was very lucky that my, my film got staff picked uh, by Vimeo and uh, they did an article on the film. So it, when when it goes to Vimeo staff pick, usually you get a really high number of hits so that's how they they found it and my film was in festival circuit before that so I think that's how she found me so so then let's come to sort of your process so I guess you're coming into this some of the writings already been kind of put together had they already done the audio interviews with yeah uh, so what happened uh, is that um, in August the, a team came to Chicago and they did an interview with Levette the, the woman that I worked on her story and um, basically, they spend a whole day spending with the family, with her and the two children, to kind of get a better understanding of who she was and uh, what her life was, to kind of uh, know exactly how to reflect that into the story. And uh, when I joined the project, I had lots of material, including the interviews, including the audio recording that they had, lots of pictures uh, from when they they met Levitt and even children's um, her children. And uh, they also shared some of the stories, like what happened that day, what they did to kind of give a better understanding of who she was and what kind of life she had. So I can design the frames and the film kind of uh, in line with that. And so for people who haven't had uh, the lucky opportunity to go to Sundance and see this at the premiere, uh, the, the film itself is it's very inky. It's very fluid. We're kind of we're not really sort of cutting as much as we're sort of floating from one image to another uh, and, and morphing from one one form to another. Um, 
how do, where do those forms come from? How, how do you actually start translating these stories into those visual forms? And, uh, and, and what's your process? Uh, well, my process, this is something that I'm, I'm still experimenting with uh, on how, how to do this transition, whether a transition can work or should it be a cut. But uh, I did a lot of experimentation in my previous film, and I think it was easier for this project. Uh, so what I did was, based on different sections of the story and the dialogue that I had, the, the narration, uh, I designed frames uh, separately, like illustrated illustrated frames. And then I was trying to, like a puzzle, you try to find the best way to kind of transition, um, keeping the context and see if it works conceptually with the idea that you have, that these forms would trans kind of transform into each other or morph into each other. What does that show? Or some parts of the film, for example, there's a section that she's talking about when she was going through the divorce, and we thought that playing with the shadows and kind of intensifying them and having them kind of take over the entire frame can work like a casting a shadow on someone's life because divorce is such a uh, intense uh, process for a lot of people. Uh, so some of them were actually how the visuals were working together, and some of them were more conceptually uh, connected with the idea behind the story. <laughs> The Trump Diaries. Devin Nunes releases a memo that purports to show the FBI and justice conspiring against Trump. The stock market takes a tumble. Is another shutdown ahead? Hope Hicks is put into the spotlight, and the memo backfires as heat increases on the White House. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 378, February 1st. In an unprecedented break with a sitting president, FBI Director Christopher Wray said his bureau has, quote, grave concerns about material omissions of fact that fundamentally impact a memo House Republicans are planning to release. That memo, written by Chair and Trump water carrier Devin Nunes, alleges that the FBI and Justice plotted against Trump. Wray says the memo is inaccurate and misleading. In a related story, Trump was caught on a hot mic at the State of the Union address telling Republican congressmen he will quote, 100% release the memo to the public. Trump apparently believes that memo will exonerate him. Axios reports that Trump asked Rod Rosenstein if he was, quote, on my team during a December meeting at the White House. Rosenstein replied, quote, of course, we're all on your team, Mr. President. Trump has made four loyalty requests from various officials in the Justice Department and the FBI. And Trump seeks to cut the budget for renewable energy sources by 72%. Trump bragged about, quote, beautiful, clean coal in his State of the Union address, where Trump's proposal to be followed through on, which is unlikely, it could collapse the expanding market for solar and wind in the USA. Those sectors have rapidly added jobs despite Trump's push. Coal has added just a total of 500 jobs in the last 18 months. And just before the State of the Union address, Trump signed an executive order to keep Guantanamo Bay open. The majority of detainees held in the Cuban facility have never been charged with a crime. And the director of the CDC has resigned. Brenda Fitzgerald bought shares in a tobacco company one month into her tenure as CDC director. The CDC's mission is in part to cut smoking. It is the leading cause of preventable death in the United States. And the chair of the House Oversight Committee becomes the latest Republican to bail out. Trey Gowdy will not seek re-election next year. Just 48% of Americans approved of Trump's State of the Union speech. Trump claimed his ratings were the highest elfer. That is grossly false. 
Day 379, February 2nd. The White House is worried that FBI Director Ray will quit if Trump releases the House Republican memo to the public. Strong rumors of Ray's departure have been circulating in Washington. Trump is dead set on releasing the memo, believing it vindicates him. Ray has privately denied the rumors, but has not yet commented publicly. And top Democratic Adam Schiff claims that Devin Nunes has released an altered version of his memo that is substantially different than the one the committee voted on. In related news, Trump tweeted this morning that the memo was the reason why FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe was, quote, fired. McCabe has actually retired. Trump is also reportedly telling friends the memo is specifically designed and intended to discredit the Russian investigation. The New York Times is now reporting that Hope Hicks, Trump's right-hand aide, is now a target of the Mueller inquiry. Hicks is alleged to have told her boss she would conceal emails between Trump Jr., the transition team, and a group of Russians who met with them at Trump Tower. A memo from a former lawyer for Trump, Mark Corallo, says he believed Hicks could be brought up on obstruction of justice charges, especially in light of a conversation on Air Force One that saw Trump draft Trump Jr.'s response to questions about that meeting. Corallo quit the Trump team in July and is now cooperating with the Mueller investigation. And in a related story, the legal team representing Trump aide Rick Gates suddenly resigned. The reasons for that are under court seal. One of the lawyers said, quote, the document speaks for itself. Legal observers believe the lawyers have resigned rather than knowingly perjure themselves in open court. And the Consumer Enforcement Bureau has been stripped of its powers to enforce lending rates among minority borrowers. In another action, the Bureau has stopped enforcing a case against a group of payday lenders who are charging rates of up to 9,000%. They have also dropped enforcement of the Equifax case that saw 43 million Americans' records hacked. Day 380, February 3rd. Trump today approved the release of the Nunes memo. He preceded that by attacking the FBI and the Justice Department in an early morning tweet that accused them of having, quote, politicized the sacred investigative process in favor of Democrats. Trump told reporters later, I think it's a disgrace what's happening in our country. A lot of people should be ashamed of themselves and much worse than that. Trump also told reporters when asked if he would attempt to fire Rod Rosenstein, the justice official who approved the Russia probe, you figure that out. Trump also tweeted again, quote, there was no collusion or obstruction, again, calling it a witch hunt. The Nunes memo, however, does not clear Trump of charges of collusion or obstruction. In fact, as the memo's contents became public, Republicans began backing away from it as it became apparent that Nunes' memo actually makes clear that several Trump associates were under investigation by the FBI at a much earlier date than realized. The actions of aide Carter Page and George Papadopoulos were instrumental in the FBI opening inquiry in the first place. Page also reportedly billed himself as an advisor to the Kremlin before working for Trump. Nor does the memo provide any support for Nunes' claim that the FBI abused the FISA warrant process. In fact, it shows that the FISA court approved and reapproved those warrants multiple times. Trump is calling for a new nuclear arms race. His Defense Department is attempting to build and deploy new low-yield nuclear weapons that could be used against, among other things, cyber espionage. Russia is apparently working on the same goal, a troubling reversal of an Obama-era policy that sought to cap all nuclear development. In related news, the New York Times is reporting the White House seeks more options on North Korea and that the Pentagon is worried that Trump is too eager to use military force against the Hermit Kingdom. Paul Ryan sent out a tweet calling a secretary's $1.50 weekly pay increase a sign of the Republican tax plan success. Quote, a secretary at a public high school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, said she was pleasantly surprised her pay went up $1.50 a week. She said that will more than cover her Costco membership for the year, the tweet said. The tweet was widely criticized as out of touch. Ryan deleted it on Sunday. Day 381, February 4th. 
Trump became the first modern president to skip a traditional Super Bowl sit-down. NBC, which carried the game, was rebuffed by Trump personally. Trump has carried on a bitter war with the network over their coverage of his presidency. And the director of the CIA, Mont Pompeo, met with the head of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Agency. The head of the GRU, the CIA's Russian counterpart, has been banned from entering the USA since 2014 under sanctions measures. Pompeo did not disclose the contents of that meeting. And KT McFarland withdrew her nomination to be the ambassador to Singapore. That nomination had stalled over her testimony about contacts between Trump and Russian operatives. Also, an anti-science nominee, Kathleen Hartnett-White, was withdrawn to sit on the Council on Environmental Quality. White had called renewable energy sources parasitic and had made a number of anti-climate change statements. Day 382, February 5th. The government is now on course for another shutdown as the short-term spending resolution will expire on Thursday. And Trump today called Democrats treasonous after they didn't clap for him at the State of the Union. He made the comments at an Ohio rally saying Democrats were, quote, like death, un-American, un-American. Can we say treasonous? The release of the Noons memo appeared to be backfiring as more and more Republicans backed away from the contents of the document over the weekend. That document, pushed hard for by Trump in the belief it would exonerate him, has in fact increased the pressure on his White House as it became clear that several of his campaign aides were under FBI surveillance far earlier than had previously been known. Top GOP senators decried the effort to tarnish the FBI. Curiously silent is Jeff Sessions. Of course, he is the head of the Justice Department. Trump ripped Adam Schiff, claiming he leaked confidential information. Calling him Little Adam, Trump wrote, Little Adam Schiff, who is desperate to run for higher office, is one of the biggest liars and leakers in Washington, right up there with Comey, Warner, Brennan, and Clapper. Adam leaves closed committee hearings to illegally leak confidential information. Must be stopped. The House committee is likely to release the Democrats' counter memo today. Trump is unlikely to approve the release of it. And the stock market suffered its biggest one-day decline since the financial crisis, losing 4% of its value. Every network cut away from Trump's Ohio speech to cover that collapse. Trump has spent weeks taking credit for the surge in stock prices. And Rachel Crooks, who accused President Trump during the 2016 election of forcibly kissing her, is launching a bid for the Ohio State Legislature. Crooks said in a statement, I think my voice should have been heard then, and I'll fight for it to be heard now. And a bipartisan immigration bill that will be unveiled today gives permanent legal status to dreamers who have been in the U.S. since 2013 and ramps up security on the southern border. The bill does not include funding for Trump's wall or end decades of legal migration policies. Trump dismissed it out of hand today, calling it a total waste of time. And Paul Manafort's suit against Robert Mueller was rejected. A federal judge said Mueller indeed had the authority to investigate Manafort. Manafort's suit was considered a legal moonshot. A number of Philadelphia Eagles players said today they will skip their traditional White House Super Bowl visit, citing Trump's racism and his policies. And Politico reports that despite a tightening in polling on the generic ballot, numbers remain grim for House Republicans. Democrats have outraised them by a substantial amount, despite Paul Ryan giving each member a one-time check for nearly three-quarters of a million dollars today. Here in Illinois, a Nazi is running unopposed in the 3rd District. The district, currently led by Dan Lipinski, a Democrat, has no Republican challengers save Arthur Jones, a former leader of the American Nazi Party who denies the Holocaust. No other Republicans registered to run. Day 383, February 6th. The stock market sell-off continued today and went global, intensifying fears of a correction. Trump, who has tied himself closely to the stock market, remained silent for much of the day.
Trump's lawyers are telling him not to sit for an interview with Mueller, concerned that his history of lying will lead to charges from the special counsel. Trump, who has been forced in earlier court cases to admit to lying under oath, is convinced he can talk his way out of the Mueller investigation. But his lawyers, led by John Dowd, also feel Mueller lacks legal standing. That reading is dubious as a Nixon-era case decided by the Supreme Court gives prosecutors wide leeway. And the House Intelligence Committee voted unanimously to release a Democratic memo that rebuts the one released by Chair Devin Nunez. It is unclear whether or not the White House will authorize its release. In a related story, the New York Times and USA Today have filed court requests to unseal FISA court documents, arguing the White House's actions and citations amount to declassification and therefore put that material into the realm of public interest. Day 384, February 7th. The Washington Post reports that Trump is planning a Bastille Day-style celebration of military might in Washington. Trump is said to have requested masses of soldiers marching in formation with tanks rolling down D.C.'s boulevards. With very few exceptions, presidents have refrained from such displays. They are common in dictatorships such as North Korea and were, of course, a fixture in the old Soviet Union. As outrage continued to swell over Trump calling Democrats death and treasonous, Sarah Huckabee Sanders claimed the president was joking. Steve Bannon refused to appear before a House committee investigating the Russian efforts in 2016. He is now in contempt of a subpoena. The White House wants Bannon to claim executive privilege, which the House committee says he cannot. Trump told reporters, quote, I'd love to see a shutdown wiping away any hope of unity after he professed that at his State of the Union address. Trump wants funding for his border wall and changes in decades-long policies of legal migration, which Democrats and some Republicans say are non-starters. In related news, Chief of Staff John Kelly said Trump is unlikely to extend the March 5th deadline on DACA, saying he doesn't believe, quote, this president has the authority to do that. The deadline was arbitrarily imposed by Trump in the first place. And a federal court has ruled that Pennsylvania's illegal gerrymander was correctly thrown out, forcing a redraw before the 2018 elections. In response, a Republican Pennsylvania congressman has responded by attempting to impeach the justices. Trump's approval ratings have improved slightly to 40%. These are the Trump Diaries. This week, Contro Tiempo spoke with Jorge Mujica, a freelance writer and immigration and union activist, about Trump's State of the Union speech. Mujica unpacked Trump's immigration proposals and what they would mean for the citizens of Illinois and Chicago. Contratiempo airs every Sunday at 9 a.m. Y estamos de regreso aquí en Contratiempo Radio en esta conversación con Jorge Mujica hablando sobre estas políticas trompistas atrampadas <risa> con el trompas, dice él. Eh, Marco Polo. Sí, a la orden. Eh, Jorge, nuevamente estamos, estamos ya de vuelta. Hablemos sobre los cuatro famosos pilares migratorios eh, que mencionó nuestro presidente Trump. ¿Cuál es tu...? Tú tu... insistes en decirle a nuestro presidente, será el tuyo. ¿eh? <risa> Estamos, está, es, bueno, esa es la democracia, ¿no? Que nos da la posibilidad de poder decir nuestro presidente o el presidente o el Trumpas, ¿no? El Trump. No, no es, no, es, no es de mi preferencia, pero vaya, vivimos en el mismo país. Él menciona cuatro pilares. Eh, para que su reforma migratoria se lleve a cabo. Eh, la primera es, bueno, él ofrece 1.8 millones de inmigrantes ilegales 
que fueron traídos por sus padres cuando eran pequeños, ¿no? Uh -huh. Los famosos dreamers, los DACAs. Yo no sé si sean las 1.8 millones, no sé si sean el número correcto. Ese es, ese es el número oficial. que se manejó originalmente cuando se hablaba de DACA bajo la administración de Barack Obama, de la gente que podría calificar. Uh -huh. Después resultó que solamente 800 mil la solicitaron y la, la obtuvieron, ¿no? pero se hablaba de que 1.8 millones de personas serían beneficiadas, es decir, los que caen en la categoría. Ajá. ¿Qué pasó con el millón que nunca solicitó? Pues que no tenían el dinero, que tenían antecedentes penales, no porque sean criminales, sino porque el sistema los ha criminalizado, este, o cualquier otra cantidad de motivos. ¿no? Entonces nunca lo solicitaron, pero cabían en la categoría de DACA. Esos son los 1.8 millones que maneja el Trompas, ¿no? Ajá. Eh, como punto número dos, él, bueno, a cambio de eso, él pide dinero para su muro. 25 mil millones de dólares, que es un, un gasto increíblemente ridículo y que yo creo que se va por lo bajo, porque ya las experiencias de construcción de Barda en la frontera, que pues ya existen ¿no? en montones de lados, claro han sido fatales, este, hay eh, anecdótico, pero se puede comprobar este, versiones anecdóticas de que el presupuesto original de 4 millones de dólares por milla de frontera en realidad se convirtieron en 10 y en 11 millones por milla por una serie de razones. Este, si tú te vas a Google Maps y nomás miras el mapa de, de México-Estados Unidos, pues la frontera parece una rayita, ¿no? Entonces, pues qué fácil poner una rayita, poner una claro. barda en la rayita. Pero si tú te acercas, pues te vas a dar cuenta de que el río Bravo, por ejemplo, como todos los ríos, este, pues va serpentineando, ¿sí? Para arriba y para abajo, y da la vuelta, y da la otra vuelta, y da la otra vuelta. Uh -huh. Entonces, sería infinitamente caro hacer una barda que, le, que vaya dando la vuelta para arriba y para abajo, para arriba y para abajo, para arriba y para abajo. Hay lugares en donde no hay una sola población en 100 millas a la redonda. Uh -huh. Entonces, ahora sí que... Aunque parezca chiste, pero ¿en dónde van a comer sus tortas del almuerzo los trabajadores que estén edificando ese muro en la frontera? Pues tienes que ir creando pueblos, este, pueblos constructores para ir construyendo la, la, el muro en la frontera, ¿no? No va a estar trasladándote 100 millas al trabajo en la mañana y 100 millas al trabajo de regreso este, para ir a construir un cachito del muro. Eh, una gran cantidad, pues sobre todo los, las riberas del río Bravo, o del río Grande, como le llaman de este lado, pero el río Bravo, uh -huh. eh, son zonas eh, donde los niveles de agua suben y bajan, eh, y hay legislación federal que dice que en, en zonas de ese tipo donde el agua sube y baja, los wetlands, cualquier tipo de construcción que hagas tiene que servir al mismo tiempo eh, como dique, contra las inundaciones, no puedes nomás llegar y construir una pared, sino que tu pared tiene que tener ciertas características, etcétera, y entonces eso duplica y duplica los costos de la famosa barda, entonces yo creo que los 25 mil millones servirían para alguno de los prototipos que están ahí en la mitad del desierto ridículamente este, construidos, construidos pero para hacer algunos kilómetros más, pero no hay manera de construir una barda de, de mar a mar en la frontera. Entonces, 25 mil millones de dólares pues, sería un gasto terriblemente absurdo, 
terriblemente absurdo, se podría usar ese dinero mucho mejor en otras cosas, pero tampoco es una cantidad exorbitante de dinero, uh -huh. tampoco. Es decir, cada, cada avión de guerra cuesta este dos mil millones de dólares, ¿no? Entonces, no es tampoco exagerado lo que está pidiendo, pero pues es, es totalmente absurdo. Eh, otro de los puntos es eliminar la lotería de visas. La lotería de visas originalmente le llamaban, el apodo de la lotería de visas era la amnistía irlandesa. Okay. Eso surgió eh, porque efectivamente en, en, en las cuotas, las cantidades de visas que están aprobadas para cada país no satisfacían la posibilidad de inmigrar de una serie de países europeos, este, muy particularmente Irlanda e Italia. Entonces la presión, el lobby, ¿no? el cabildeo de los italianos y de los irlandeses llevó a la creación de la lotería de visas. Ok, hacemos una lotería, todos los que se inscriban tienen el chance de ganarse alguna visa. Pero pues la intención era inscríbanse los irlandeses, inscríbanse los italianos, ¿vea? y entonces así pueden emigrar a los Estados Unidos porque la, la cuota de visas para estos dos países es muy pequeñita. Claro. Como todas las cosas, pues eso obedeció a una coyuntura, a un momento histórico eh, determinado. Ya el momento histórico cambió, la economía de Irlanda dio un volteón completo, progresó, mejoró, se fue altísimo. Y entonces ahora los irlandeses no quieren vivir en Estados Unidos, quieren vivir en Irlanda. Claro. Ya, pues, están todavía viviendo un boom económico, entonces ya no hay necesidad de esas visas para los irlandeses, para los italianos, para otros países europeos, no, este, con la creación de la, de la Unión Europea, pues esa, esa lotería de visas deja de funcionar para los europeos, y ahí es donde pues si cualquiera puede solicitar, pues los nigerianos y los este, la gente de Surinam y la gente de donde sea empieza a pedir esas visas, empieza a participar, y entonces ahí es donde se llena de africanos, de caribeños, de una serie de cosas, ¿no? Esos a los que Trump se refirió como los países de, del final del intestino sí. del mundo, ¿no? Y tenemos como cuarto pilar, Jorge, este menciona sobre, para, para que nos lo expliques un poco, eh, el cuarto y último pilar protege a la familia nuclear al poner fin a la, a la migración en cadena. Ese es un punto muy interesante. Mira, yo siempre he dicho que lo que necesitamos no son visas de hermano, sino visas de trabajo. Es decir, todo el sistema de inmigración estadounidense está basado en esa cosa que le llaman la reunificación de la familia. Uh -huh. eh, yo no estoy en contra de reunificar la familia, pero yo no creo que la política de un país... Eh, para los trabajadores internacionales que necesita la economía, deba estar basado en las relaciones familiares. ¿sí? Eh, si yo pido a mi hijo, ¿sí? es para que mi hijo tenga una visa de trabajo y pueda trabajar aquí, no para estar con mi hijo. Sí, pues qué padre estar con mi hijo, pero mi hijo que le entre a chambear, ¿no? Uh -huh. Este, igual a mi papá, a menos que mi papá tenga 80 años, por supuesto. Este, igual a mi hermano. Entonces, el problema de estar pidiendo visas de hermano, cuando en realidad lo que necesita mi hermano es venir a chambear, este, nos ha desorientado un poco. Yo creo que lo que hay que hacer es dar visas de trabajo, no visas de hermano. Entonces, es un punto controversial, por eso me van a 
recordar a mi mamá, este, muchas de la gente que están aferradas a, a, a ese eslogan de la reunificación familiar, pero yo le digo igual, el hermano puede solicitar una visa de trabajo, ¿cuál es el problema? No tienes que solicitar una visa de hermano, uh -huh. ¿sí? igual va a ser tu hermano el que la va a solicitar y el que la va a conseguir, pero lo que necesitamos es basarlo en la economía, lo que jala a los inmigrantes a este país y lo que los expulsa de, de sus países de origen son las economías. ¿sí? No necesitamos que venga mi hermano, necesitamos que venga otro trabajador a este país, lo que decíamos antes, ¿no? 4.1% de desempleo, los campos agrícolas este, pues, se quedan sin trabajadores. Entonces, ¿qué necesitamos? ¿A un hermano o a un trabajador? Entonces, ¿qué categoría le vamos a poner primero? Ahora, una vez dicho eso, el problema real es bajo qué condiciones se van a emitir esas visas de trabajo. ¿Van a ser visas de residencia permanente legal o van a ser visas temporales, ¿sí? donde te tengas que ir cada nueve meses o cada dos años y tengas que volver a pedir y tengas que volver a pagar y tengas que volver a hacer el trámite y a lo mejor ya no te la ya no te la renuevan y entonces durante los dos años que estuviste aquí conociste una chava, te casaste o a un chavo o lo que sea, no este uh -huh. te casaste, hiciste familia y, y de pronto ya no te renuevan tu visa. Entonces, ¿qué onda? no Pues este ah, es, va, va a haber desunificación familiar otra vez, va a haber separación familiar. Entonces, ¿bajo qué condiciones se darían esas visas de trabajo que la economía necesita obligatoriamente? Porque lo que sí es cierto es que hoy a mi hermano le dan una visa eh, de residente legal permanente. Entonces, lo que necesitaríamos es que esas visas de trabajo también sean de residente legal permanente y que no estén este, atadas a condiciones leoninas como las que pretenden poner a los trabajadores de la agricultura, de que solamente puedes trabajar con este patrón y si no trabajas con este patrón, entonces tu visa se cancela, porque eso pues solamente está promoviendo un tipo de esclavismo moderno, ¿no? Este, tienes que decirle que sí al patrón en todo lo que diga el patrón, porque cuando le digas que no, pues te quita el trabajo y automáticamente te quita tu visa. Pero yo creo que la solución tiene que ser discutida y tiene que ser en esos términos. Uh -huh. Lo que necesita este país son visas de trabajo, visas para trabajadores, ¿sí? y hay que ver en qué términos se expiden esas visas. Radio Free Bridgeport welcomed Lucille Furs into Studio B for a live performance off their brand new self-titled LP. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time, at 4 p.m. Working at three I sat at the bar and count the money And through the window I see Carry your eyes to pick up duty I've been watching them for days Cause they always be in the same place Carrie and Judy making
there again today Hiding under the bus stop in the pouring rain But carries a glow The Judy arrives, they kiss and off they go And I have no idea what they would do It's the middle of the afternoon Carrying Judy Megan Excellent pass Produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lump and Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay. Produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lump and Theme, background and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lump and Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lump and Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.